Good morning, everyone. We're continuing in our series of messages from the gospel according to John. Uh, this theme of abide, I think, really comes through in the second half of the gospel. I talked last time we were uh, starting into chapter 13 of John, how the first half is kind of focused on Jesus bringing his message to the world. The second half is Jesus turning his attention to his disciples. And I think that idea of abiding in him, of taking up residence in Jesus, uh, is really kind of the core of the Christian life. And there's so much in these final chapters where Jesus focuses his attention on the disciples. Uh, we're going to be seeing that theme come through uh, very strongly here uh, in the final chapters. But what, as we get started uh, with the message today, what do you think the greatest thing God has done might be? Think back over the, the whole Bible. Was it delivering the Israelites from Egypt through ten miraculous plagues that subjected the most mighty uh, kingdom on the earth at the time? Uh, was it parting the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross on dry land? Was it miraculously feeding this enormous group of people for 40 years every single day providing manna to keep them alive. Maybe we fast forward to Jesus and say, well, no, maybe it was feeding 5,000 with nothing but five loaves of bread and two fish. Or maybe it was Jesus walking on water and commanding the winds and the waves and telling them what to do. Maybe it was Jesus standing outside the grave of a man who had been dead for four days and commanding him, Lazarus, come forth, and up he comes out of the grave. There are a lot of amazing things God has done that we could talk about. Jesus, in the text we're looking at today, talks about a moment of glory, I believe, the most glorious act of God in the history of the cosmos. So let's see what he had to say about his glorification. We are in chapter 13 of John. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 38. And I've titled today's message, The Glorification of Jesus. Let's start reading with verse 21. Having said these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will hand me over. If you remember the last time we were looking at John, uh, we had Jesus, uh, John tells us, Jesus, uh, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And then immediately tells us about how Jesus kicks off the evening by taking off his, his uh, outer garments and uh, putting a towel on his arm and getting a wash basin and filling it with water and then going around and washing the feet of each of his disciples. And he's laying out for them this different pattern of how it's going to work. If we're uh, coming to God, we're not the ones coming to serve a need he has. Let me tell you this about God. He doesn't need anything from you. He already owns everything, so your offerings are not making God richer. Your tithing is not making him better off financially. And uh, in terms of getting things done, you know, you think you're serving him by doing things he wants done. God can do anything he wants. He doesn't need you to do it for him. 
When we're talking about coming to God, really, it is God who is serving us. We are the ones who have a need. We are the ones who, because of our sins, are actually ruined. We are unfit for eternal living. We are destined for the trash heap. And we come before God in desperate need. And God serves our need. God washes our dirty feet. God takes care of our sin. And only then does he say, take what I've given to you and give it to others. He told the disciples, you've seen what I did, your master, your Lord. Take what I've done and do the same for others. We receive from him and only then have something to serve that is of any worth. So he's laid this pattern out and now all of a sudden we, John tells us that Jesus is troubled in spirit. And this is, he's going to keep coming back to this. Clearly this final evening before his crucifixion, the cross looms large in Jesus' heart. He can't seem to get his mind off of it. I can understand why. The prospect of it is absolutely terrifying. And he's troubled and he bears personal witness to it. He testifies. He gives his own eyewitness account to what's going on. And he, he, he lays down the first little bit of agony that this horrendous next 24 hours is going to cover. Truly, truly. Every time Jesus prefaces something with that amen, amen, he's kind of signaling, I'm about to say something important. This is a very uh, important truth. One of you is going to hand me over. It isn't just the cross, but the fact that it's going to be uh, accomplished through betrayal. And not just betrayal by some acquaintance, Betrayal by one of tw Jesus' 12 most intimate disciples. He had hundreds, thousands that flocked to listen to him every time he preached. But of those, there were 12 he handpicked to prepare and train and disciple. Judas was one of those 12. And Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of the 12 people he loved the most and had invested the most in, in his earthly ministry. We wonder why Jesus had to go through all of this. Why did he have to suffer the way he did? Not just the cross, but why throw in the, add insult to injury? Why did he have to be betrayed by someone he had been so loving to? I think the author of Hebrews provides some insight. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Apparently, the only way to redeem us from sin was not only as God Almighty to say, I am willing to take the, 
the punishment upon myself. And of course, God is the only one who could rightfully do that because he was the one offended by our sin. He's the one that gave you the gift of life. And every time you do something wicked, it is first of all spitting in the face of your creator before it is an offense against anybody else. And God alone stands in the position to be able to say, I am the one offended, I will choose to pay the cost of forgiveness. And it had to be paid for. We say, oh, why didn't God just say, let's, let's pretend it didn't happen. Somebody murders your child. Is that what you're going to say to the judge when the person guilty is brought before him? Oh, let's just pretend like it didn't happen. No, we know that evil demands punishment. That there has to be a consequence to our sin and wickedness. And God can't just pretend like it didn't happen. It has to be paid for. God alone is in the position of saying, I will bear the burden of that. I will pay. How do I do that? God takes on flesh becomes one of us. God had to understand fully who we are to redeem us. And you might say, well, God knows everything. Didn't he already know anything? And yes, God had a kind of knowledge that far, far surpasses any knowledge we have. Think about yourself. You probably think you know more about you than anybody. You know what you're thinking? You know what the internal spiritual soul things that are going on in you are? Uh, and you know your body? I mean, you know if something hurts, you, you, you're fully aware. Have you ever gone to the doctor and been told something about your body you had no idea? Like maybe you have cancer or maybe your sugar is too high. Or maybe this or that is going on. I had no idea. I'm living in this body, but there's so much about it I know nothing about. Well, God knows all of that. What God lacked was the experience of finitude. God had never been hungry, thirsty, exhausted. God had never poured his heart and soul into a relationship only to be betrayed. Not in, in a physical sense, not in, in the human experience of life as a finite being who doesn't know everything. And God had to know what it is that he is redeeming from the inside out. Not just the external information about it, but he had to have the experiential knowledge of it. Because only then, according to Hebrews we're told, only then could he become the perfect author of salvation who has perfect empathy for what we are suffering. So he had to endure even betrayal by someone he loved. He had to endure the physical agony of the cross and he had to endure all the things you and I do. You know Jesus, before this is all said and done, will even know what it is to beg God the Father, please don't make me do this. And for God to say, I'm sorry, but yes, you have to do it. To plead with God for something desperately and for the answer to be no. Jesus even discovered what that's like. Think of that next time you're upset at God 
for telling you to do something you don't want to do or for refusing to do something for you that you want him to do. He had to take on all of our weaknesses to redeem us. Jesus was deeply troubled by the cross. He knew he had to face it as a man. How does it affect you to know that Jesus willingly faced the cross for us with all the same experiences that any human being would have had? Let's keep reading. Verse 22. The disciples were looking at one another at a loss regarding of whom he spoke. There was one of the disciples whom Jesus loved reclining on Jesus' chest. So Simon Peter is motioning to this one to ask him of whom he is speaking. So that one leaning in this way on Jesus' chest says to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answers, it is the one to whom I will dip a bit of bread and give it to him. So dipping the bit of bread, he takes it and gives it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And after he took the bit of bread, then Satan entered into him. So Jesus tells him, what you are doing, do quickly. But none of those reclining understood this, why he said this to him. For some were thinking, given that Judas had the money box, that Jesus is telling him, buy the things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So having taken the bit of bread, he went out immediately. Now it was night. So Jesus says this, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples have no clue. They, they can't even begin to conceive of that as a possibility. They've all left everything behind to follow after him. They are all in. There's no way any of them's doing this. And they're looking at one another. What, what's, he, what's he talking about? And uh, this is the first time in the gospel that John identifies himself. Interesting note about the Gospel of John. Now, there's very ancient witness that this Gospel was attributed to John from the very beginning. The earliest Christians understood that John was the author of this Gospel. But in the whole Gospel, John never identifies himself by name. In fact, of the four Gospels, this is the only one that never even mentions John the Apostle by name. All the other Gospels, he features prominently among the twelve as one of the key uh, among the twelve. But in John's Gospel, he never even mentions his name. The only John we read about in John's Gospel is John the Baptist. The only way he refers to himself in his Gospel, and this is the first time he does so, is as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, some people say, now that can't be John because he sounds like he's bragging there. Yeah, Jesus loved me. I don't know what he thought about you guys, but man, he really loved me. And I think that's completely to misunderstand what he's trying to do. I think likely when John finished writing his gospel, he was probably the last remaining living apostle. And at that point, he was probably the object of great reverence from other Christians and other believers. And I think what we see in the gospel is his attempt to redirect attention from himself to Jesus. By refusing to identify himself as anything but some guy Jesus loved. John is reminding his readers that he's not the important one. That it's Jesus who loved him. That's the identity that has made him who he is. And I think rather than being a prideful thing, it's completely the opposite. He's trying to direct attention to Jesus 
whose love has made all the difference in his life. I'm sorry. Um, so uh, here's the scene. Now in antiquity, uh, people would at a dinner like this would recline on the floor on cushions and they would generally lean on their left elbow and eat with their right hand. So you'd, you'd kind of angle your body away from the table, lean on your elbow and, and you know, eat like this. So you'd have people like this. Now probably it was shaped maybe like a U and at the center would be Jesus and then the two position of greatest honor would be on either side of him and then other people down the sides. That's probably the way it was set up. So the two positions of greatest honor would be right and left of Jesus, right? Uh, now John describes that he's leaning on the chest of Jesus, which would mean that he's on Jesus' right, because Jesus is leaning this way, John's right here. All he has to do is this, and he's got his head right on Jesus' chest. Uh, so John is to his right. Now, I'm not sure why, but apparently in, in, in this time, this was considered the position, the second position of honor. The position of greatest honor would have been to Jesus' left. I'm not sure exactly why that's the way it works but um, that would have been the, so John finds himself in the in the second position uh, of honor and uh, who's on his left well we don't know I think it's pretty clear it wasn't Peter because if it had been Peter he wouldn't have had to motion to John to ask Jesus he could have just done it himself he'd be right next to him but Peter is somewhere else around the table and he's looking at getting John's attention Figure it out. What's, what's, he, what's, what's he talking about? So John just kind of leans back and says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, well, it's the person I'm going to dip this bread and give it to. None of the Gospels tell us that Jesus had to get up to do this. So it may be that the person to Jesus' left was Judas. He just dips it and hands it to him right there next to him. There's no way to know. The lack of information, you, you can't assume. Uh, it may be that he was somewhere further down the table and he had to get up. But even if Judas wasn't in the position of greatest honor that evening, uh, he was one of the 12. The fact that he was at the table at all was a tremendous honor. Every time Jesus went anywhere to preach, thousands would flock to listen so that he picked these 12 to spend this final evening with. is a tremendous honor that Jesus is bestowing on him and he gives him the bread. John says, after he took the bit of bread, then Satan entered into him. I, I think we shouldn't understand this to mean that it's at that moment that all of a sudden he decides to hand Jesus over. We're told in Matthew and Mark's account of this that before that final evening, he had already made arrangements with the chief priests to deliver Jesus to them. So it isn't that he thought of it at that moment. In fact, in chapter 13, if we back up to verse 2, we're already told that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas that he would hand him over. So Jesus, uh, at this moment that he gives him the bread, I don't think that's the moment that he, he decides to betray Jesus. I think maybe that's the moment, John is indicating, where uh, any doubt is erased, 
where he's fully in and, and any uh, hesitation is gone and he's going to go through with it. Maybe up until that moment he was still debating whether he should go through with it or not. Uh, something, I don't know. It seems incongruous that Jesus honoring him and treating him with love to the very last moment would be kind of the thing that triggers the final decision. Uh, maybe it was just yet one more reminder that this, this isn't the kind of life I want to live. I don't want to follow a selfless Lord. I want the, uh, the regular kind of Lord where I have privilege and slaves and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus isn't going to get me anywhere near there. Maybe that's what pushed him over the edge. Whatever it was, that's the moment. It's, it's, I'm done. I'm, I'm doing this. So Jesus turns to him and says, you know what you're up to. Get it done. Don't dilly-dally, don't waste time. Get out there and do it. Uh, he hastens him on. I think John, writing this years later, looks back and says, Man, how could we have been so dense? Jesus could not have been any clearer. One of you is going to betray me. Who? It's the guy I'm about to give this bread to. How do you miss that? How do you not understand that? And... Uh, we see this in all the Gospels, how as they look back, it's bewildering how difficult it was for them sometimes to even understand the simplest things Jesus was saying. They are so convinced Jesus can't be right that they're already making up in their minds ways to explain away what's just happened. Oh, Jesus, this, what you're doing, do it quick. Maybe, okay, Judas is in charge of the money box. Maybe he's telling him to go out and get some stuff we're going to need for uh, maybe the rest of the evening or maybe the next seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Maybe he has to grab something else that we uh, still need. Or, or maybe, you know, piety demands that we give alms to the poor and nowhere is this more... Uh, praiseworthy than to do it in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe he's telling him to go give something to the poor. And, but then John adds, after he takes the bit of bread and leaves immediately, he adds this comment, now it was night. Which kind of lets us know immediately that neither of those options make any sense. If it's already night, there's no merchant to go buy anything from. And the poor are not going to still be out on the streets begging for alms at nighttime. Nothing of what they're suggesting makes any sense. Also, I think John is setting the tone for us. Night is falling and, and darkness, the moment of darkness is drawing near when the, the Son of Glory will be nailed to a cross in the most horrendous uh, travesty that will ever occur in the history of the cosmos. The only innocent will be murdered. Jesus honored Judas even to the very night he betrayed him. What does this tell you about the way Jesus loves us? Verse 31, so when he had gone out, Jesus says, now the Son of Man has been glorified and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and he will glorify him immediately. Jesus announces, we've arrived at the moment of my glorification. 
and he, he refers to himself as son of man. So he's bringing our attention back to that vision Daniel had in chapter 7 of his prophecy where he sees God the Father, the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne, sovereign over all creation, and he is approached by one on the clouds like a son of man, and to him the Ancient of Days gives the eternal kingdom, and he will rule forever and ever. That's the moment Jesus is saying it has arrived. The moment of his, uh, the son of man's glorification. The moment in which the kingdom is handed to the son. Now you might say, why did this have to happen at all? Jesus is God. He's not some other God. There is only one God. He participates fully in the Godhead and the Trinity. So he reigns over all creation eternally. Why did he have to be established as king of creation? Wasn't he already king of creation? Well, I think the answer has to do with God's intent for creation. God has always been sovereign of creation. Nothing has changed in that. But if God wanted to save creation rather than just destroy it once it fell under the power of sin, and this is God's responsibility, God is righteous, and it is his responsibility to ensure that creation is pure and right as opposed to wicked and evil and dark. So it falls to him to purge creation of sin and darkness and he can do that by just destroying it. But what if he wants to redeem it? What if he doesn't want to just wipe it clean? What if he actually wants to take those wicked human beings and actually fix them? Change them. Make them right. So that they can actually enjoy eternity with him. What if he wants to fix all that is twisted and wrong in all of creation? Well then God has to do something. He has to take on flesh. He has to come and inhabit this creation. And he has to take upon himself all the punishment and all the consequence of sin. And then, when he has done that, when Jesus has gone to the cross and hung there until he says, it is finished, and gives up his breath. When he has done that, then the Father can glorify him and deliver to him the kingdom. And in this sense, Jesus becomes king in a way he wasn't before because now he is not just sovereign, now he is savior. He is redeeming king. That is the coronation he's talking about. The moment of glory has arrived. And God's glory is going to be uh, displayed in this event. Let me tell you, there's nothing more glorious in the history of the cosmos than that moment when God hung on a cross. When God laid down his life. What does that tell you about the kind of God we're talking about? How absolutely inconceivable is that love? Where are the boundaries of his grace? How deep is his mercy? Look at the cross and you'll get a glimpse of it. 
It is the most glorious moment in the history of creation. That is the moment in which the Son earns the kingdom and he becomes redeeming king of all. God is glorified in that moment and God will also glorify him in himself and I think Jesus is here is referring to the resurrection. He will die on that cross but he will not be abandoned to the grave. The Father will raise him to glory and deliver to him all authority in heaven and on earth and uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, kind of the end scheme of all of this. Yes, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was given authority over all things in heaven and on earth. And he's going to reign until he has dealt definitively with the problem of sin in creation. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. Then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is talking about the, the initiation of this reign that will culminate in the removal of sin and all of its expression throughout creation. And at that moment, the Son returns the kingdom to the Father. The cross was the most glorious moment for God in all his interactions with creation. What does his death on the cross tell us? about God. 33. Little children, I'm with you a little, yet a little while. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So also I say now to you. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. In this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus turns to his disciples. They're so confused. And uh, he loves them like his children. And he lets them know, I'm, our time is short. I'm only with you for just a bit longer. You're going to seek me. But I'm telling you the same thing I told the Jews who don't want anything to do with me. I'm going to a place you can't come either. Surely they were grieved at this, and it's obvious Peter has words about it in a moment. What do you mean you're going somewhere without us? But Jesus doesn't want them to focus their attention on that. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what a horrible uh, few days lie ahead of them. They're going to feel like everything has been taken from them. Not only Jesus, but their own sense of dignity and worth. They're all going to fail him and abandon him to the cross alone. And it's going to feel like not only has Jesus failed them, God's failed them, they have failed themselves. They're going to feel awful. But Jesus knows that's not going to be the end of it. He knows Sunday's going to come around. He knows the glory that they're going to encounter. Uh, he also knows that things are changing. That from here on out, uh, it's not going to be him walking around and teaching on hillsides. Uh, it's going to be different. He's returning to the Father and his work is going to continue through his disciples by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a different way. And there's a lot Jesus has to talk about this in the coming chapters.
But right now, Jesus says, I don't want you to focus on me being here or not being here. Here's what I want you to focus on. I have a new commandment to give you. Love one another. Now, you might say, that's not new. That's plagiarized. It came from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We already have the commandment to love one another. Why do you describe this as a new commandment? Well, here's the thing. Uh, the, the referent has been changed. Now, God is so wise. When he gave us the commandment to love one another, and he wanted to be sure that we were actually loving one another, not just calling it love and using one another, which we do a lot, he said, well, let me, let me give them a standard that will guide their approach to loving one another. Love one another as much as you love yourself. Now, love of self is automatic and instinctual. We automatically pursue our good before the good of anybody. That's just the way we are. Every one of us is that way. Our number one concern in life is me. Even when we're depressed and sad and upset, our focus is still me. Even when we're loving ourselves very badly, our focus is still me. So Jesus, God set up this commandment in such a way that the more selfish you are, the greater the burden of love becomes. Because the same selfishness you show towards yourself is the degree of devotion with which you are to love the other. So the worse off you are, the greater the burden, right? It has a wonderful way of kind of keeping pace with us and correcting our self-centered tendencies. But you know why that commandment from Leviticus 19:18 is insufficient? Is that even my own love for myself is not good enough. That is not the measure of true love. My love for myself is tainted and twisted and wrong in many ways. So it becomes a, an imperfect model for, for, for patterning love of neighbor, right? Jesus came to provide us the perfect model for love. So this is what makes it a new commandment. We are no longer to look within. We are to look above. We're to look at Jesus. That's the love we're to give. Now, Jesus just taught the disciples that they don't serve God. God serves them. And only then do they have something they can serve others with. You can only give to others what God has given to you first. The supreme service God wants of you is love. But this is the only way it can work. You have to receive the love of Jesus before you have anything to give of worth. So we receive Jesus' love, and that's exactly the way we love one another. In fact, Jesus says, this is how everybody is going to know that you are my disciples. People should be able to look at us and tell the difference between a follower of Jesus and a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu. There should be a supernatural love that is not present anywhere else. Because it comes from Jesus, not from us trying to be good people. 
This is how people will know that we belong to Jesus if we have love for one another. Not, not the Leviticus 19 kind of love, the kind of love he's about to display on a cross. Love that includes betrayers and enemies and cowards. Love that includes people who fail you. I'm saddened. I've been in the church my whole life. I'm saddened by the moments in my life where I have witnessed Christians not demonstrating this love. And it's odd to me how this always happens. I've been in churches that have come close to splitting. I've been in churches where I came in right after a split. And always when these things happen, uh, one group of Christians and another group of Christians both think they have the moral high ground. That somehow they have a better understanding either of the doctrine they're fighting over or the direction the church should be taking. And they hear Jesus clearly and everybody else is not listening. And they are so convinced that they are right and the others are wrong that they are willing to break fellowship over it. They're willing to sacrifice loving one another as Christ loved them over this other thing. Now, let me say, doctrine is vitally important. What we believe should be what God tells us, not what we decide. Our morality is tremendously important. How we behave in this world should conform to the patterns of instruction that God has given us in his word. All of that is true. But if we ever pursue these things and do it in such a way that we have set aside the love of Christ, we've already failed. Because the only thing that proves we belong to Jesus is that we love each other the way he loved us. That's it. The witness of the church depends not on how great our theology is, not on how great our morality is, but on how closely we correspond to the way he has loved us. That is the witness of the church in the world. Things are changing. Jesus is trying to let the disciples know. Given our many shortcomings... How do you think we can love others the way Jesus has loved us? Let's finish. Verse 36. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you are not able to follow me now, but you will afterward. Peter tells him, Lord, why am I not able to follow you now? I will lay down my soul for you. Jesus answered, You will lay down your soul for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not even have crowed until you have denied me three times. Peter never got past the I'm going somewhere and you can't come. I think he completely missed the whole I've got a new commandment for you bit. He got so hung up on the other. What do you mean you're leaving? I left my job. I left my family. I'm out here with you and you're going to leave me behind? And he says, where are you going? 
Why can I not come with you? And notice Jesus' answer is, the place I am going, you, can, you are not able to come to now. But you will afterward. So Jesus isn't saying, no, this is goodbye, Peter. Done with you. No, he's just saying, I'm going to be absent physically because where I'm going to be, you are not, uh, you have not yet been glorified. You cannot be with me in this situation until the same has happened to you. So it's going to be a bit before uh, we talk of resurrection and glorification and you are fit to enjoy with me the resurrection I'm going to be experiencing. But he's not saying, I'm cutting you out of it. He's just saying, it's going to be a bit. You have something else to deal with in the immediate future and we'll get to that, but it's not going to be right now. And Peter is insistent. Why can't I go with you now? And he, he's convinced of this. I'm willing to lay down my soul for you. I put it all on the line for you. And Jesus gives him the final teaching that he needed to hear. You're about to betray me three times. I think that was tremendously difficult for Peter to hear. I think he believed that was impossible. But it's true, before dawn, three times Peter is going to say, I don't know who Jesus is. And the last of it, he's even going to call a curse down on himself if he's lying. Three times. and. Peter doesn't know at this point what it's going to do to him when they come to arrest Jesus and he pulls out a sword. I don't know where he had it, but he pulls out a sword and chops off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus, instead of saying, all right, let's do this, turns to Peter and humiliates him, shames him and says, put that thing away. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. That's not what I'm doing. And he forbids for his disciples to fight to protect him. And he allows himself to be arrested by this group of temple thugs and taken away. Peter doesn't know yet what that's going to do to him. And he's going to be broken. And he's going to try to follow Jesus. And that's going to put him in a context where as they're grilling Jesus inside and he's in the courtyard outside, people are going to start saying, wait, aren't you one of them too? And he's going to panic. And three times, each time with in, in increased intensity, he's going to deny Jesus. Now notice, when Jesus tells him this, he's not telling Peter, the reason I don't want you to come with me now is you're about to fail me. That's not at all what he's doing. In fact, Jesus already, before he even tells him about this, told him, you're going to meet with me afterward. We're going to be together. It's just not right now. But here's what you're going to have to deal with soon. You're going to have to come to grips with the fact that you're not anywhere near the, the, the strong disciple you think you are. You don't have the resources within yourself you think you have to offer me. That doesn't mean Jesus isn't going to do amazing things through Peter. But until Peter breaks, until Peter comes face to face with his own failure, until Peter discovers that all 
he has to offer Jesus or the world is what Jesus has given to him. Until Peter realizes that, he's going to be useless. Now he will realize it. It won't be that long after the crucifixion that he'll stand in front of the very same group of people that put Jesus on the cross. And he will tell them, you guys murdered the author of life. And he will tell them, you guys need to repent. And you need to believe in the one you had crucified. He will find his courage. He'll find it when Jesus gives it to him. Jesus knew Peter was going to fail him. He chose him anyway. How does this example help us in our walk with Christ? Jesus came because if he didn't come, we would all be eternally damned. He would have been forced to destroy all of creation and us with it to get rid of the problem of sin. So instead of doing that, he became one of us, became flesh, walked among us. He endured the sufferings and temptations we all face daily. He was tired, hungry, thirsty, hurt, angry, sad, frustrated. He actually knows what it is to beg God the Father, please don't make me do this, and for the Father to say no. He took on everything we have to face so that he could rescue every one of us. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, a man he loved and treated with honor to the very moment he brought in guards to arrest him. He was failed by his most determined disciples, abandoned to face the cross alone, and he went to that cross to pay with his life for the sins of the world. He did this so that he could redeem cowards and enemies of God. Forgive their sins and provide a way for them to be transformed into his own glory. He wanted to share eternity with us. The most glorious thing God has done in the history of the cosmos is to hang on a cross and give up his life. Now, as Savior King... He calls us all to come to him in faith and receive the rescue he bought for us at the cross. The question that falls to us now is, are we going to surrender our lives to his redemption? Or are we going to stay on our path to destruction? We're going to sing a song of invitation. I want you to have an opportunity to do something in response to God's Word. It may be that you already know Jesus and this was a reminder to you of what He's asking of you, that you receive from Him His love and give it in equal measure to those around you. Maybe you've not been doing that and you need to come and ask forgiveness and ask Him to help you to discover how to do that come while we're singing. It may be that you've never uh, even trusted your life and heart to Jesus and this redemptive process has not even begun in you yet. Come today and say, I want my life to be in Jesus' hands and I want his love to be the governing factor in my life.
It may be you just need somebody to pray with you. You may be dealing with something. You need somebody to partner with you in prayer. Whatever God has put on your heart this morning, come while we sing. Let me ask you all to stand. And we have people that are going to be up here at the front uh, to uh, pray with you as you come forward. Please come while we sing.